Welcome to Resilience Unraveled, a series of podcasts helping you produce performance on purpose. For more information, go to our site qedod.com forward slash podcasts. We hope you enjoy today's episode. So today um, I'm talking to Jeremy Warren. Jeremy's a fascinating individual because not only is he a serial technology entrepreneur, he's also someone who's done um, some quite significant challenges in the world of boating. Um, great to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thank you very much. So, um, so it's, first of all, Jeremy, serial technology entrepreneur, tell me more about what that really means. Okay, yeah. Um... Uh, as of this week, actually, I'm, I'm the chief executive of uh, a technology business, which is a bright idea that's come out of the University of Oxford uh, in a, a clever microscope. But these are uh, this is the work that I do. The last nine years, I've spent uh, developing analytical instruments and building a business, again, as chief executive, using some outside finance um, from a, a bright idea from a government laboratory. So it's, uh, it's about commercializing um, clever science, if you like. Uh, usually I find myself amongst a, a group of people much better qualified uh, than I am, um, but I have a, a sort of toolkit of, of business skills, if you like, and I've been around for a while. So, so, so you're working with the sort of mad inventors and the investors and such like, you're bringing this all together and uh, making it work and delivering a, sort of some sort of first stage business results or something. Is that how it works? Yes, that's, that's right. What we're looking, the investors are looking for an exit, so they for something and to sell it to someone else. So it's a time horizon of sort of uh, three to six years, maybe longer than that. I'm not sure the, um, the, the, the senior academic staff would want to be described as mad professors, but, but that just about, <laughs> they do live in a rarefied environment and sometimes it's difficult for them to uh, occasionally communicate with people outside of, 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 uh, of that milieu. Thanks. <laughs> maybe I meant mad scientists, but they're mad... <laughs> Point, point taken. Um, all right, that's really interesting. So I'm guessing with something like that, you've got a very short-term focus. You've got a f- clear sort of purpose in what you're doing. It's a very, yes. yeah. it's a very defined period of time and clear, de- clear deliverables, clear exit. Yeah, that, that's that's how that works. It's it's obvious what needs doing. But the big issue uh, in all these cases is this new device or this new bit of technology um, can do loads of things, which is a great thing about it. But the bad thing about it is it can do loads of things and you can't do everything. So the key decisions are about um, who really wants this? Everyone's interested in new bits of technology, uh, but who is really willing to pay for this? That's the, the key question we have to try and answer early on, simply by talking to people. Someone once told me resilience-wise, both personally and business-wise, that it's not what you do, it's what you choose not to do that's the sort of critical decision. Yeah, I'd buy that. I'd buy that 100%. That's absolutely right. When you decide not to do something, it's really important to leave it alone. You can't have half a dozen hairs running and and, and attempt to build a a new new business um, uh, any other way than be focused. But, you know, you're trying to make a decision about being focused um, with about a quarter of the information that you really need to make that decision. Yeah, so there's a fair amount of gut feel, intuition. Yeah, and I've had that gut feel. I think that's, that's important. I think gut feel and intuition, similar things really, a lot of that is informed by experience. So uh, it's not just that. It's like if you pick up a deck of cards and you're gonna, you, can, you say to yourself, I reckon the next one will be a red card. That's daft. That's, that's not intuition. But if you're, if you're in an environment that you understand, a business or scientific environment, 
I think you've got previous experiences which 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 reassure you and and, and make it fairly obvious which way you ought to go. Yeah, it's the ga- it's the difference between gambling and risk, isn't it? It's uh, it's understanding that and it's understanding yeah, that difference. That's it. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to say. Um, that's great. So, but but the, but you and I both know that um, the trouble with gambling or risk, but particularly risk, is that mistakes get made. So, take us to yeah. a time where you know things haven't, well, things have gone wrong, perhaps, and how, how you've dealt oh. with that. So, um, if you're an investor, you have a portfolio of different businesses, and the idea is to uh, to spread your risk. Me, I'm running those businesses, so I spread my risk, but over time. So I do them one at a time, and if they come off, they don't. That's fine. But if I look at the last six businesses I've been involved in, there have been two spectacular failures. One was, and we won't get too much into this, but one was the guy I was in bed with was a crook, and I had no idea. I checked wow. him out as well as I could, yeah. and uh, and what happens is I, I have a, a drink at a pub one evening and say to one of my friends who's a lawyer, "Look, this is the way that we're going, and these are the thoughts and things I'm expected to do tomorrow." And he said. This is a this is this is a custodial sentence. This is a genuine crime if you, you go ahead with this. Uh, and so I walk into work the next day and um, give back the keys of the company car and walk away and walk away from the money I've invested as well. That was a pretty dark day, um, and I'm glad that was a long while ago. So how did you how did you? Because um, uh, I, I suppose part of part of your mental part of you must be thinking, well, actually, do I make this work? Is there a way of you know pulling something out of this? But obviously you've made a decision just to walk away. How did you how did you decide to do that rather than compromise and yeah, so well, I've done the wrong like... compromise to get to there. I think probably in the back of my mind I was looking for someone else to give me an excuse to to walk away. Sometimes you simply don't feel comfortable with business partners. It's very. I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I wouldn't call myself gullible, but I'm I, I always tend to see the good side, and, and I suppose I'm easily sold to by other people. So I'll tend to trust people up to the point at which there's a problem. But as there's a continuing stream of problems, as there were in this business, uh, you start to think, wow, you know, maybe I made a mistake. Pretty hard, though, to question your own judgment and say, I've made a genuine mistake here. This guy's uh, a dreadful person to work with. That's, uh, I think that's, that's pretty hard. But, uh, of course, <laughs> as you walk away, you feel a tremendous sense of relief. Right. So, so that sort of self-honesty is really important at the, at the top yeah. level of organisation, I suppose, isn't it? I think it's, yeah, it's required. It, it also, I mean, a lot of people who see business from the outside see it as unprincipled, but I see um, uh, integrity and honesty as, as core values in making it work. They also mean you can sleep at night, um, and, and if you can combine that with commercial success, I think that's a, that's, that's a good formula. Yes, interesting. Um, right. Okay. So, how did you how did how did you first get into this world? I mean, it's in, it's interesting to know um, someone's progression and, and how you got there. So, just sort of a rapid summary yeah. of Jeremy Warren's so, life. Okay. So, I'm a uh, I'm a uh, I did an engineering degree uh, because my grandfather was an engineer and I used to play with Meccano when I was a kid. Ah, um, I went on and worked for Unilever Group of Companies. Did really like working for a big company and I, I worked as a management consultant a little bit I got a, a, an MBA in, in France which was which was a lot of fun when I was 30 years old um, but I quickly began to understand business 
businesses I liked to work in and those that I didn't. And I met a really, really helpful guy at, um, at Booz Allen, actually, the consultancy I was working for. Now, he'd been the, he'd previously been uh, in charge of a large financial services company that, across the whole of Asia. And he understood operating jobs and consulting jobs. And he understood both of those and, and what they, and, and the good bits about them and liked both. But he was able to explain to me that I was an operating person rather than a consulting person. That was really, that was really helpful. Because clarity came from him, he's a lot older than I was. But really, the main influence is my father. So my late father was an entrepreneur. He he uh, ran a village shop, uh, a corner shop, a post office, and and he got out of that the day that supermarkets uh, started selling sweets at the checkout, and wow. got in and became an office. He ran an office cleaning business. Got into a business he didn't know anything about. He didn't have any particular education, um, but he really made that work and was very successful in. That. And I, I suppose at the end of the day, I, I compete with his, uh, with his legacy. I think that's it. that's part of what I do. I think it certainly makes me what I am. Yeah, without a doubt. And it's interesting. You've identified two things about entrepreneurs. It's about seeing, seeing, seeing the writing on the wall or the opportunity, but also yeah. it's the graft, isn't it? It's the hard work. People, I don't know what your view is, but my view is that people don't have no stamina. They don't have grit. They don't yes. stick at things, do they? The, the, forget yeah. that. In order to be successful, you have yeah. to you have to put in the hours, don't you? You do. Okay, and we we you know you and I would agree on that. But it, so in practice, what that means is that you've set yourself up to go and do a job and to make something successful. And I don't think you assess your success in there or whether you're going to stay or not every day. You simply get, get on with it and cut it into small bits. You say, these are the challenges I've got today. Okay, I've got some strategic challenges. I need to know I'm in the right business, and I need to have foresight but i don't need to be doing that all the time most of the time i need to be making sure the people around me are doing the right sorts of things and listening to the people who are essentially our customers so the whole challenge breaks down it into into doable chunks when you look back on these things they look daunting and you think crikey i can't believe i've you know achieved so much or in some cases wasted so much time on business some business opportunities but it doesn't you don't i don't think you assess that as you go along you, you're doing a day-to-day -day job yeah. Um, and uh, and trying to work out of the, the dozen things you've got to do, or more than that, um, which are the two or three important ones that are worth doing pro properly. So in the course of time, I'm guessing you're someone who's put together teams and groups of people on a regular sort of basis and been a member of different groups and teams at different times. Have you come across people who are particularly resilient or people who are particularly not resilient? And have you sort of noticed the difference with those sorts of people? Yeah, absolutely. I think you sense resilience in people. And I think it's a, a trait that, that I find um, attractive and desirable. When you build a, when you build a team of people, um, what happens is after a while, they, you set an example, uh, but the, the people that you keep and the people that you nurture um, probably uh, have similar traits, or at least traits I desire in myself. And so you develop a, what we, I suppose, in management suite, we call that company culture. But really, it's the... Things around here. This is what's expected of me. This is how um, uh, this other. This is how the boss would behave in this circumstance. And this is what I ought to do as well. And I think. And I think resilience is an, a very important uh, uh, part of that. And and the, that resilience means um, it doesn't mean dogged determination just to go one way. But it means you can take a few knocks as you go along. You can certainly take criticism. That's that's pretty important. And you can also use analytical skills to try to take a 
uh, an objective view of the situation you're in uh, rather than rather than personalizing it and, and all of those I think are recognizing people who become good team players they contribute so much to the people around them as well they, they, they become good people to work with because they're productive but they become popular as team leaders as well because because everybody everybody appreciates the way in which they work You've, you made a very interesting observation there, but there about the criticism piece because actually um, you have to have disagreement with people. So if you can't take criticism, you never you never have that robust debate that you need in business, do you? To be able to profoundly, you know, almost have conflict in that sense of really fundamentally disagreeing, but then not being emotionally scarred by that process. So you can come up with a great result. So I like the, the use of your analytical toolkit there as well. I think that's quite important, isn't it, to be able to balance the, the emotional with the analytical. I, yes, and, and, and part of that is the, is the basic um, building blocks by which good science is built, of course, because you have clever postdoctorate students challenging a professor all the time, and good professors put, surround themselves with uh, clever and sometimes uh, uh, um, very challenging and awkward, or not awkward, but, uh, but challenging colleagues who are always going to say, well, yeah, you say that, but I'm not sure that that's quite right. And then the, and then the debate begins, and that's... And that's constant challenge, that constant questioning is at the core of, of good scientific development. And so that's interesting because um, just sort of linking that into sort of leadership as well, would you sort of use that toolkit as a, as a good leader, developing more resilience in your people, that sort of analytical questioning, criticism, challenge, probing, uh, would you use that absolutely. same toolkit as well? Yeah, absolutely. And the way in which you do that practically is is by when people have some bright ideas, you listen to them and you, you do let them speak and you do let them run with the ball occasionally. I think you only... Develop people, give people, sorry, you don't develop people, people develop. You give them an opportunity to develop. When you give them an opportunity to screw something up, you give them a genuine responsibility where if they get it completely wrong, it is going to harm the business in some way. That's genuine delegation. And that, you know, I continue to be amazed how well people perform when you give them an opportunity. And, and quite often, how people can do a much better job than I can do um, when you give them uh, a chance to do that. And, um, and that works. And the downside, of course, or the other, the flip side of that is, when they screw up, um, then you've got to, you know, you've, you've got to be forgiving. You've got to let the other people around you uh, who are watching this interplay understand that if someone's made a mistake, that's okay. You know, making the same mistake again and again, or out of lack of diligence or, or foolishness, that's no good. But if you've genuinely given it a go and it doesn't work, and you've made it, or you've made a mistake just because you 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 um, you're unlucky or you lack the experience, I you. You know, you, you don't want to punish those things. In fact, you want to positively uh, make it clear to everybody else that that's okay. And then what do you get? You get a whole load of questioning, useful people who can grow enormously quickly because the thing that holds back entrepreneurial and growing businesses is, is people. There's plenty of finance around for bright ideas. There's plenty of bright ideas and lots of market opportunity. What holds the whole thing back, slows it, the rate limiting step in chemistry terms, is, is, um, is, is, is being able to, to train up uh, and uh, recruit and train the right sorts of people. Yeah, fascinating. Um, you, you made a really interesting comment about this sort of screwing things up and then how you learn from that. So I'm, I'm guessing, and you've already dis described one thing, but how have you screwed things up? What, sort of big, what, oh, sort, what are some of the big lessons you've learned? Okay, this is, this is cathartic for me, Russell. You're helping me here. <laughs> so um, uh, the other one, and that was, that was really quite recently, 
Um, I was invited into a business that had been trading for five years. Uh, the investors had put um, several million pounds into it. And I was brought in because I knew one of the investors and because I was free having sold my last business. So uh, the idea was to give us more visibility of uh, uh, more visibility of the technology we were developing to more customers. And it took about six weeks to find out that all the work this business had done, all the technology they're developing, which I, which I, which I can't discuss, um, it, it just didn't work. It only worked for one customer. And as soon as you talk to the other customers, they shrug their shoulders and say, we haven't got a problem. And so there's a fundamental technical problem within the business. So at that point, you haven't any choice but to go, this doesn't work. And you quickly look around up for other opportunities for the same technology. And there weren't any in this case. So we end up walking away and closing the business down. And that's, and that, okay, that isn't a failure actually in management terms. I've saved the investors from investing any more money. I've given the board of directors the visibility they want. But for the people around me who get who get dismissed because the business closes, luckily there are only a dozen of them on that occasion. I mean, that's, um, that feels pretty terrible. And even though you're doing a proper, yeah, proper managing job uh, on behalf of the, the shareholders for whom you're working for, it, it's still, it, there's, you've still got a lot of emotional attachment even to a business you've been to through a short time. So that's, that's quite traumatic, traumatic and, quite, and quite uncomfortable, really. And so, and so what's the learning point from that journey? Because I mean, I'm guessing that's one of those things that is quite situational, tricky to learn a life lesson from that, is it? Is it? Or, would you yeah. just, or, or would you disagree? The lessons are, are you, you can't, there was no way forward with this. There was no point in hiding right. from uh, the truth. But then again, you do feel like you're, you're not a stayer. It doesn't sound like resilience to say there yes. isn't any other use for this technology. But we did have a very good go at that. And with a, a, good, a good colleague who's consultant, a corporate banker, um, we had a, a very good thorough outlook at the business. One of the things that made it easy for us to make those decisions is we didn't have an emotional tie to the business like the founders did. Yes. So we didn't already have a, we hadn't all sat around and agreed over a few drinks many, many times. This was a great technology and it was going to make a great deal of money and, and be widely applicable and change the world in a positive way, which they had because this was a, a, a green energy project. So um, it looked, we, we were, we were, it was easy for us to be objective because uh, we didn't have emotional attachment. And I think we only realized that afterwards. I, that's really interesting because you, you hear a lot in entrepreneurial circles and uh, sort of human psychology circles this idea that you have to have grit and, resi and determination, but you have to know when to give up because you can't you can't keep kicking a dead horse or a dead sheep or sheep or whatever yeah. the phrase is. And so something about you know you often meet entrepreneurs who've not um, you know won any business for six months or you know not won a customer for eight months, but they you know they absolutely believe in their idea and they won't let it go. And so I think what you've said is quite interesting. A resilient person knows when to stop. It's back to that idea of focus and knowing, knowing when to stop as much as when to go. So I wonder, is that back to the analytical, emotional toolkit being pressed into action again? Yes, it is, because there is no other way to, uh, to sort things out than, um, than specifically to, uh, to have that conversation with your colleagues and to, and to work it through. Um, there's no, there's no alternative. Great. So before we, we, we began the podcast today, you were telling me about um, your experiences at the 1979 Fastnet race. And I, I find this intriguing. Lots of entrepreneurs and lots of successful people often have a very, a very unusual sideline, well, as, or a very different sort of sideline. And so, so tell me about your, your world of, um, your attractions to the world of boating and boats. 
Yeah, that was okay. That's my father again. He's got a lot to answer for. Um, I uh, I got into sailing when I was very young, two or three years old, I suppose, five years old, uh, and I've and I've done that ever since. But my sailing experience is wide. So I'm a I'm a, a sailing instructor and an offshore yacht racing skipper, and 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 have a a wide range of different sailing that I've done. But that particular experience, that was the first ocean race. That's a crew of six people, um, a four day, five day sail out into the Irish Sea and back. And my father was the skipper. I was only 20 years old, 21 years old, um, and a huge storm struck the fleet. And of that fleet, I think um, uh, 11 people perished, which was unprecedented. We'd never seen a storm like it. You can imagine 35 foot yacht and breaking seas 55 feet high. It's just, wow. it's just unbelievable. Yeah. Um, but I was very young at the time, um, and I was lucky. So I was thrown overboard, washed overboard as the boat was turned over by a wave wow. um, on the end of a safety harness, and you know that. The, and I, um, I was dragged back on board the boat by by the uh, by the safety harness, and then you look down at the hook attaching you to the boat, and it's opened up by about six millimeters. So it took a lot of strain, um, but it didn't break, and it makes you it just makes you reflect on your mortality. I think. Yeah. And so how did you feel the next time you got into a boat? I mean, was, was there any sort of reluctance? No, not really, because I was a kid, really. I mean, at that age, you, you just don't... I, I, what I thought was, uh, this is tremendous experience. I've been, I've been privileged to do this. But you certainly take a lot of experience from that, a lot of understanding um, from that, which is, which, is, which is very helpful. So at that age... That, uh, yeah. given that level of resilience did you reflect on uh, you, you talked about reflecting on your mortality it's yeah i'll tell you what gets you through a situation like that is training because we knew just what to do we'd read all about this and um, we practiced some of the things and my father was a good leader and we had some really sturdy guys on board one of the guys this part of the world that we work in um, um, bristol he was actually a test engineer a professional air flight test engineer and you just don't get cooler than this so yeah. so we had a super crew we were very lucky when you get out to sea, um, you recognise your own humility, I think, and you. And when you get back afterwards, it's not because you've conquered the sea, it's just because you've been let off. So you're exposed to uh, forces of nature, um, the weather and the sea, that are so much more powerful than we are, and, and that's good. That gives you a sense of perspective and a sense of how insignificant you might be when you, you know, you've had a good week in work or something like that has happened. So, so certainly that's what it gives me. And it's an environment in which you can only concentrate on what you're doing and so, or everything else you're thinking about goes away. Tell me all about your amazing adventure uh, sort of, uh, and the sort of the record you set going around the UK, was it? Yeah. So tell me, so tell me about tell me about that because that is that's a test of physical as well as mental endurance. Yeah, that was that was that was remarkable. So uh, my my friend um, uh, Phil catches me at a at a, at a sailing club um, uh, social occasion uh, when I've had a couple of beers and nothing to eat and says, "Why don't we sail a small dinghy around the UK? It's been done before, but I think we could do it better." And when we say small dinghy, we mean a, a 15, uh, 15 foot, a five meter dip with two people where you're working hard to keep it upright all the time. That's a 16 foot boat. So a 16 foot boat, it's only the same size as an estate car. Wow. And, so it's, right, got, okay. and it's got enough room for, for two people and it's crowded with three. And uh, when the wind blows, you have to use your own weight to keep it upright. And if you make a big enough mistake, it tips upside down and you have to, you have to right it again and empty the water out. Um, and normally these boats are sailed for a couple of hours at a time. Um, very few people have ever sailed one at night. So we practiced learning to sail a, a dinghy, a sailing dinghy, um, uh, overnight. And over a period of about a year and a half of preparation, I 
should say at this point, Russell, we're both me and Phil are both pretty nerdy engineers. So we so the preparation was very thorough in terms of making sure all the bits were going to uh, not break. Yes. And we sailed anti. We sailed clockwise around the UK from the bottom middle at um, at Weymouth. Yeah. And the previous record, the previous guy had done, what he'd done. He, that was only the year before. He'd hopped from one port to the next and spent um, uh, and spent the night in a pub basically. Uh, so he didn't actually do any overnight sailing, and so that took a long time. Yeah. Um, so he gets, uh, he's doing clockwise again. He gets to Land's End and goes up the coast to, to Padstow and Ilfracoom and across to Lundy and Cardiff and then Tenby and then finally gets to Tip of Wales. What we did, we sailed from Weymouth. Uh, it, the first leg was to sail from Weymouth round Land's End and then straight north to the Tip of Wales without stopping. So that was three days and nights, and that kind of set the tone for the whole thing, which wow. went very well. We were, it was good weather. We, we, we were lucky with the weather. Three things. We were lucky with the weather. We, we were well prepared um, and, and, um, and we sailed well. So all, all in all, very interesting experience. And, and we more than half the previous record, which was great. We did it in 30 days, 15 nights at sea and about 15 nights sleeping on people's floors or in tents. That's pretty pretty awesome. Do you do you do you take any lessons from that into into the commercial world? Do you, do you think sort of that? I mean, you talk about the preparation; that makes a lot of sense. But yeah. the, the physical fitness, because I'm, I'm I'm sure there's an element yeah. of personal training as well. Do you, do you think fitness for that sort of exercise translates into fitness for work? as well it's interesting let's look at the fitness for that sort of sailing um phil phil had run marathons anyway in, in a pretty decent time um uh, and he was he was pretty fit and i worked hard every year and a half doing a load of mountain biking to to build up the the yeah i suppose the the um the, the resilience toughness that you that you need the endurance i think essential physical fitness counts when you're for work because you can just keep up a pace but having a, a mental fitness to Having sailing, actually, or something that you do that isn't to do with work, where you can stop and, and put it down and, and then then come back to it, um, That's I think that's really important. And it's also nice to have a perspective outside work because it means it's you've got something to talk about with people and, and, and it, it makes you, I think it makes you more personable in some ways. So, so I certainly think it, it helps. But it, what it does, the downside is you spend a lot of time at your desk thinking, crikey, I'd rather be sailing. <laughs> Do you, find, do you find you're working to fund your sailing addiction almost? Is that, is that part of it? <laughs> no, it's not. The sailing we did, I'll tell you what, it's not expensive spending, um, spending 30 days in a, in a 16-foot boat, you know, living off ready meals. It's not, that's not expensive. It's a far sight uh, cheaper than it is uh, living here. Have you any more adventures planned? Uh, well, I don't want to talk about them in advance because that, um, that uh, tempts fate. And, um, and the, the big thing that I didn't understand in this whole adventure is... I didn't understand until I got back how worried my wife had been, and I, and I, and I, you know, that's. Uh, I've only been able to live the entrepreneurial career that I have because my wife supported, which means that she can put up with periods where I'm unemployed, periods where I haven't got any money, and similarly, um, she can put up with me sailing. She's not a sailor herself, so. Um, so she doesn't have the perhaps the depth of understanding that uh, uh, that another sailor would have. Have of, of, of how this is controlled risk. Yes, it's it's you know it's it's mortal risk. You sail hundred miles offshore in a sailing dinghy. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's risky. But 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 the risk is something that we understand and hopefully we can reasonably control and manage at least some of it. Yeah, and as you said, the the, the, the idea of being resilient, but has to be countered with this idea of competence. 
because there's no point yes. throw, you know, yes. throwing, throwing, throwing yourself at the wrist, but being actually very poor at sailing. It, it comes together yeah. when the, I mean, you've, you've illustrated that point brilliantly. So a couple of quick fire questions, if I may. Um, what's, who or what has inspired you most in your life and how and why? Uh, I suppose it's the influence of my father and some of the early sailors that I read about. I used to absorb all the stuff I could find about sailing when I was a, when I was a kid. There were heroes like um, uh, Sir Francis Chichester and, and uh, uh, Sir Alec Rose, and then a French hero, a wonderful old man of the sea, Eric Tarbelly, who was so tough and so determined. Um, you know, he's a wonderful example, and you think, crikey, I wish I could just be a little bit like Tarbelly. Wouldn't that be? Wouldn't that be? Wouldn't that be wonderful? So I've got some I've got some early sailing heroes and some business heroes as well. You know, I, there are some entrepreneurs around like Richard Branston who, who I really admire. I mean, you'd think these guys, guys have done a super job. What is it that inspires you? Is it the process that they follow or is it the success that they achieve? Okay. The, the mandatory success is helpful because it means it allows me to do other entrepreneurial stuff. Um, the, the business I'm just working on now, I've been working for that for, for free for the last six months and I, you know, I can afford to do it. That's helpful and it gives my family security, etc. But the real satisfaction, and I'm only really beginning to, to understand this now, I'm 58 years old, is in the teams of people that you build and the opportunity you get to do, to get a group of people who are, who are really quite young and new in, in new technology businesses it's good to employ young people because nobody understands the market everyone's making it up as they go along mm. so you get people who have the raw material of uh, intellect and determination and you add to that a team environment your job as the boss is to make sure that people who are who don't fit in can't stay because otherwise everyone's looking over their shoulders and saying, I'm working really hard what about him or her yeah. Um, and, and if you create the right sort of environment, you don't have to do much of the managing of people. They, they do that themselves. And, and the environment's quite harsh because if, they, if there's someone not pulling their weight or hasn't got the, isn't clever enough to keep up, in, especially in scientific areas, then they don't get the support of their colleagues around them. Um, that sounds very harsh, and, but they don't last. And the thing's kind of self-policing. But what it does do is it produces an environment in which people can grow very quickly. So I can look back now, and this is enormously satisfying, on two chief executives of businesses that I used to know uh, who came to me as just, you know, as, as uh, really very green into, into their first jobs. And, uh, and, and looking back on the team of people I built with the last but one business, that's the one that didn't go bust, um, you know, that's, I'm really proud of that group of people, the best team that I've, that I've been with. Yeah, I don't, I've learned a lot from them. So yeah, that's a genuine. I, I feel even warm talking about it. It's just, yeah, just excellent. Well, you can tell the passion sort of coming out. But I also think you've just given us a recipe of how you scale a business. So um, I mean, and I think that's 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 not that's probably something that's well within your um, knowledge area that probably you don't appreciate. And people find that a very hard thing to do. What you've just described there, because it's you know it yeah. intellectually, but you've done it a number of times, haven't you? You've actually made that. You've created that environment. You've found those people. You've liberated their talent, you know, and, and such like. And you've made it productive. And whether it works out in the final numbers or or, or not, it doesn't matter because that's that's part of the challenge, isn't it, of your job? Yes. Good. All right. Second question: um, How do you handle criticism? Well, I welcome and encourage criticism from my colleagues. When they actually provide me with criticism, I sometimes wonder. When I said, so how could I have got that better? Was that just a figure of speech or did I really want that criticism? Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, 
I think I so I encourage criticism and criticism uh, cross criticism within 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 the business and and certainly the way that Phil and I got that boat around the UK we questions one another's methodologies all the time so I think it's very helpful so I see it as helpful when it's actually happening especially if the criticism is valid and it's because I have a failing some way I'm I'm sensitive to that I try not to overreact to that um, I don't always achieve that but I I I think I value criticism more than I'm concerned about the downside. So I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a positive encourager of criticism. I wonder how, I wonder how my colleagues, that's a question you ask my colleagues, how does he cope with criticism? Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. And I think they'd say, it depends how we put it. I yes. think that's what they'd say. Yes, and I think sometimes it's when it's, when it's leverage as well, isn't it? Because sometimes you, people tend to offer criticism at entirely, entirely the wrong moment. Sometimes that's that could be a problem. Of course, that's right. Yeah, and and another thing that I that I really, uh, cracky, that was a lesson from a maths teacher. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. D. That was a long, long time ago. So he said he was in the RAF and they're doing a training flight, and the trainee does a terrible job, and he's sitting in the next seat. When they land, he says to the instructor, "Well, aren't you going to get tell him off and and tell him how badly he did? Because that was awful." And the instructor says, "I don't need to. Just don't need to." telling that because it's so obvious to yes. everybody around him and to him himself yes. how awful that was uh, he's the last person who needs to be told yes. so I you know I, I think sometimes there are times to keep quiet yeah excellent tell me about a gift you give that on a regular basis or a gift that you have Sheesh. given that really adds value um that is that I think we've we've covered that a little bit in, in when I've talked about um, uh, delegating, but giving genuine responsibility to people to to responsibility where they could make a mess of things. Um, uh, now, of course, what happens is if you continue to do that with people, you get to, you reach a level, a plateau at which you've given them a job they can't do. You get to a a sort of level where if you're not careful, you're, you're employing people and uh, and they're all at the maximum level of incompetence because they yes. can't go any further. You've got to try and spot that early on, but but actually you don't need to. It's obvious to the people concerned that they can or cannot do the job. So I think um, giving people uh, an opportunity to do things that initially they found really scary, uh, didn't understand, and seeing them seeing them win through, I think that's that's something. I think that's a gift. Yeah. Yeah, certainly other people have done that for me. Early in my career, I couldn't believe what uh, the Unilever group of companies allowed me to do as a young manager, and I, I learned an, an enormous amount from that, and, and with some of my early employers as well. Yes. It's amazing how potential is stifled by not getting the chance to use it, really, isn't it? Yes, that's sad, isn't it? I think that's a genuine sadness when you see people in, who have potential and they're just not given an opportunity. Or they're managed in an environment, this really, really, I do feel passionately about this, where... Their, their boss does all of the thinking and all of the work. And, yes. and you think, crikey, you know, this person could probably do a great job, would become a great employee, can probably do a bit better job than the person that's, that's bossing them around. Yes. I find that most of the time I work in my organisation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm locked in a cupboard on a regular basis, you know, to stop me doing all those things you just described. So uh, that's, that's a good thing. Well, that's been marvellous. I really appreciate what you said today. And I think you've delivered some amazing ideas in terms of resilience and, and your expertise in terms of being a, a manager and leader and your views on that have been remarkable. So thanks so much for your help today, Jeremy. I really appreciate it. Okay. It's a pleasure. Thank, thank you both of you.
We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Resilience Unraveled helps you create performance on purpose. And you can find out more about us and resilience at qedod.com forward slash resilience. Or listen to more of our podcasts. You can also find out more about our courses, our webinars, and free resources like ebooks and paid for courses at qedod.com. Otherwise, we hope you can enjoy more of our podcasts in the future.